0: Welcome to Poppin' Lock. I'm Landry Ayers. What if an alien robot crash landed in the middle of rural Maine? What if it was equipped with high powered lasers and rocket launchers? And what if that glorified walking gun didn't want to be a gun? We'll discuss all that and more today because we watched the animated cult classic, The Iron Giant. Joining me today are executive producer at Return on Ideas and returning guest, Sean Malone. Hey, Landry. How you doing? And interim director at Libertarianism.org, our good friend, Paul Meany. Hiya. Paul specifically has been talking with me about this movie for a a good amount of time. We've had it kind of on the back burner for a while, wanted to do an episode about it because it just has a lot of really – strong themes uh, that I think our audience would be curious about. But even beyond that, I mean, we can feel free to get into that as well. But beyond that, what makes the Iron Giant to the two of you stand out as a film, as an animated film, as any type of story? I mean, compared to the Disney and Pixar and DreamWorks animated films that it's sort of in the same vein as it does stand out and has its own distinct style. So what about it makes it special to the two of you?
1: So I actually, I didn't watch Iron Giant as a kid. Um, I didn't watch very many animated films as a child. So I actually watched Iron Giant as an adult and it still broke me down to tears like the little baby I am. But what really shocked me about it is that it's a, most animated films take place in a fantastical world, not in 1957 Maine. And I think that's really, really interesting that it's the only fantastical element is the Iron Giant, but the rest of it's played pretty super straight for the most part.
2: I don't remember what, how old I was when I first saw this movie. I was probably, well, I was certainly not a little kid. I, it would have been um, 17, 18, maybe somewhere in there. Uh, and he, he said, it broke you down to tears, Paul. But I mean, it does that to me every time I watch it. It still does it every time I watch it. It it doesn't uh, – it hasn't changed. I, I think to answer your question, Landry, the the direction and the writing in particular from Tim McCanley's, who also wrote Secondhand Lions, which is another one of my favorite movies. Tim McCanley's directed that movie as well. And then, of course, Brad Bird, who – this was Brad Bird's first feature animated film. And then, of course, he went on to do The Incredibles and, you know um, – uh, Ratatouille and uh, you know Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol of all things but um, those it it's a beautifully crafted film it's a beautifully executed film but also it's just got such powerful characters and such a powerful theme overall about you know self uh, self um, ownership and and choosing who you are as a person um you know free will those kinds of things i mean it's it's such an amazing film when especially in context of so many of the messages that you see in children's animated movies even in that era you know a lot of times not that great or really not even that clear but the iron giant remains one of the the best examples of theme in you know storytelling of any you know adult or children or whatever um and it's just got such a great heart to it that it just it's i often describe it as as my favorite film if if people ask me that question
1: i definitely throw it up very very high on the list and i completely agree that it's a even though it's a children's film I, i actually hate saying even though it's a children's film because a lot of kids films have really important and interesting messages but i agree that a lot of them a lot of them boil down to very, very simplistic ideas. Um, and this movie could have existed with just Hogarth and the message could have been be yourself, but it doesn't. It has the Iron Giant as a, a kind of a way to talk about the message and not a super cheesy way because he's something alien and different. But that makes it more universal almost. Every character, I think, in in this film, all,
2: every like significant character has opportunities to demonstrate their own choices as individuals. And it doesn't treat... It's one of the things I was, I was trying to like put my finger on the other day, but like the it could rely on stereotypes far more than it actually does. Like there are comical stereotypes of you know Dean's sort of beatnik and there's these kind of like redneck mainers, you know, and, and uh, like sailors and stuff like that. But you'd you'd also think that a movie like this would just make the army in general into the the big villain. And it's actually not, you know, like th- there are aspects of all of those things where every character has a chance to to be human and make a choice. And I, I think that that's something that adds a lot of depth to it. Um, I agree with you, like saying it's for a children's film or whatever. There are tons of films made for adults
1: that do not have this level of depth either. So, and just to go off what you're saying about Dean and individualism and making choices, and um, at the very beginning of the film, Hogarth kind of meets Dean and Dean kind of goes along with him and hiding the squirrel from his mother but eventually um they become closer and they start talking one night and they're drinking coffee and he's uh Hoggart's hyperactive on espresso and he's talking about his whole life and he's saying he's bullied in school everyone calls him a shrimp and everyone thinks that he thinks he's better than everyone because he does good grades but if everyone tried as hard as he did they could too so on so forth but uh Dean just replies like Yeah, who cares what these creeps think, you know, they don't decide who you are, you decide who you choose to be. I don't know if it's the first instance of that kind of message coming out of the film, but I think that um, a lot of the movies about how appearances can be deceiving, like, you know, you might judge someone like Dean, he's a beatnik, you don't know what he could be like, he's just a drifter, a loser, whatever, you know, Hogarth's just a shrimpy kid, the Iron Giant could be an evil alien, but all of that isn't true at all.
0: The notion of theme, I think, is is very, very important because Brad Bird gets a lot of fl- – I mean, flack is, is a good way of putting it, but also gets kind of recognized or tagged as, oddly, a very objectivist filmmaker – um, because of some of the themes that are present in his movies, specifically, I've seen a lot of it in *The Incredibles*, specifically *The Incredibles 2*, um, as well as *Tomorrowland*, which has a very you know parallel or similar community to Galt's Gulch um, from you know, some of Ayn Rand Ayn Rand's writing. But I, it, there's also a lot of coverage that very much rebukes that, along with. Uh, Bird's own claims that he thinks that that lens of looking at his work is is lazy and not accurate. While some of those ideas might fit and map well onto some of his works, he's much less about these types of choices or specialized uh, special people in a political sense, and much more in a sort of artistic sense. Um, But there is some objectivist uh, tones to this. the exceptional quality of certain characters and and forging your own path, that individualism that uh, Meany had had talked about, as well as the villain being a uh, sort of corrupt, power hungry government employee, but I do think that that narrative choice to make that a plot device doesn't really reinforce that notion as a theme in the work. The movie is not about that type of government corruption. It is simply using that archetype as something to drive the plot forward. Whereas the theme that Brad Bird actually pitched this movie with, um, I believe he said he he pitched this movie to Warner Brothers after he had uh, read a, a treatment of it. And they, I believe, already owned the rights based on a stage musical that had been written by Pete Townsend of The Who, um, one of his many sort of odd musical projects uh, for the stage that was, you know, just like how Tommy had all these different uh, sort of variations and such. Um, There was a stage play and there was a treatment that was written up by someone and then Brad Bird got a hold of it. And he basically wrote this version of the script that was based around the idea, what if a gun had a soul? And didn't want to be a gun, which I think is really emblematic of what both the two of you have said about wanting to choose who you are and not being limited or pigeonholed into any one thing by other people but choosing what you can do with your time and what your purpose is. Um, and also is is interesting, you know, from a sort of libertarian standpoint to, to talk about the nature of and purpose of what a gun can do, which is interesting, but for a lot of other reasons.
1: So at the time of uh, working on the movie, something very tragic happened in Brad Bird's own life. His sister was shot by her husband, I think it was, but don't quote me on that. So he was going through a very tough time himself, and uh, while he was grieving, he read about Sylvia Platt's husband, who wrote a short story. uh, I think it's called The Iron Giant, could be called The Iron Man, but about a giant metal man who could fix himself. And it's kind of like a fairy tale to help his children get over their mother's death. Um, But when I was watching the film with my poor, poor mother, who I feel so bad for her watching movies with me, because I just, I kept turning to it, being like, it's so Aristotelian, and I kept saying all these things. Um, but I think it's kind of true in lots of ways, and not because Brad Bird was reading Aristotle every day of the week and trying to superimpose it, but because, you know, the general principles kind of hold true in a lot of ways, that we are what we do, not just what we think, and that we have a choice in a lot of matters, and virtue is a habit that we work every single day. And also other smaller themes, like um, Plato and Aristotle, two great ancient philosophers have big disagreements over what the role of media should be um, for educating people. Like, should people be allowed to read poetry or all sorts of plays that are critical of the state? That was very common in Athens. And Plato kind of comes down saying that his ideal republic, the guardians who overwatch the whole state, they would decide what comes in and what people would see and read and make sure that it's of a certain quality. But Aristotle... um, who tutored alexander the great he always was relying upon models and he wrote whole books about the nature of like theater and plays and poetry called poetics pretty simply but he showed the importance of imitation that people learn by imitating their betters and they need some sort of um they need a guide to go off of so um he gave alexander the great the guide of achilles now that didn't exactly work out great for alexander the great but you can see the idea of how having standards to imitate and things to look up to and virtue as a practical means of choosing things. It's not just something you're born with. It's something you have to earn practice.
2: Yeah. I, I think you see that theme in a lot of, I mean, it's going back to one of the things you said earlier, Landry, but I, I, I feel like th- this theme comes up again and again in Brad Bird's work in particular, but it also comes up again and again. Well, again and again, I should maybe it is strong because Tim McCandless hasn't done that much stuff uh, in general, but like, this theme carries over so, so strongly in Secondhand Lions that like the pairing of Brad Bird and Tim McCandless as as writer and director in The Case of the Iron Giant is just, it's kind of lightning in a bottle to some extent because, especially if you care about these kinds of ideas, just because I think you had two people who were really, really in sync about that core philosophical idea. It is interesting to me that um and and I you can see this all the time but it's really fascinating to me where people can create something just by focusing on theme that has a really philosophically profound quality to it without actually being necessarily students of philosophy or people who are really setting out to be you know philosophers or whatever and I and I think that there's kind of a lesson there for a lot of um, you, you know we're doing this for libertarianism.org I mean there, there's a lesson there for a lot of libertarian communicators out there because there you don't have to slam people over the head with the message that you are trying to push rather what you need to do is build characters and and have their characters be tied in deeply to a particular theme. And that's, I I think that's kind of the beauty of this in a, in a very Aristotelian sort of way, right? Like it is actually using the characters to model and the characters and the plot to model a particular type of, of philosophy and the way that you should live. Right. Um, And, and it's also like as an added bonus it's not only really well done; it's also a really good message about, you know, the that exact kind of thing that Paul was talking about the the work that you have to do every day to be the person that you actually want to be. It, it does not come out of the box, and in some cases, Iron Giant being a very good example of this, what you are born with may actually conflict directly with the the person that you want to be, and it's even harder work than other people are going to have to do, you know. And I, I think that the fact that the Iron Giant makes that choice and then uh, reaffirms that choice repeatedly, and I maybe this is the part where we should talk about the the added scenes in the um, in the twenty fifth anniversary edition. The, yeah,
0: please, um, please go ahead.
2: So the the uh, theatrical release. Um, cuts out a what is essentially a flashback to the Iron Giant as definitively a a robot that was created by an alien race to to commit genocide essentially, and you you actually get some scenes which I, I personally I I really wish weren't cut in the original release because they're they're really I think they add a lot of value. In setup for how powerful the Iron Giant is as a weapon, um, he is a, an absolutely devastating weapon, and you get a little taste of that at the end of the movie when it's sort of revealed that. Um, and you know, I, I suppose anybody watching this is going to have to deal with spoilers here, but the they're listening to this. But um, you know, at the end of the movie, the Iron Giant ends up having to protect Hogarth. And it is in those moments that he chooses to sort of turn, well, in, in some cases, he's, he's just attacked and, and uh, you know, defends himself uh, kind of unthinkingly, but he also has to defend Hogarth, and when he's doing that, you get a little glimpse of how dangerous he actually is, his, his sort of weapon systems activate and all this kind of stuff. But in the, um, in the 25th Anniversary Edition, you get a lot more of that, and it's better set up, um, it, it's just from a narrative, like just from a writing standpoint, I think it's a better, um, I think it's a better storytelling,
1: uh, element there. My idea of the film I'm watching, I watched the regular version. Um, my idea was always that like he crash landed on earth and that kind of like reprogrammed him or like kind of wiped his memory or something. And he's basically like a new person. And, um, I kind of, this is really weird, but I kind of see like a, a similarity between, the Iron Giant and Futurama, because in Futurama Bender gets like shocked, and that changes his whole programming. And it's kind of like this message that you're you're not born to do one thing. and We can always change our perspective on the world. Now that could be because you get your antenna stuck in a light bulb or fall from space, but whatever it is, you know, we're not stuck in one path in life. Yeah, I I think that that's that's absolutely the catalyst for it. But
2: I think what what that really does. Because the, uh, the Iron Giant basically spends most of that movie repairing himself. And you'll notice that, that that's really uh, – that's actually really strongly um, – I don't even know if I would say it's implied. It's, it's pretty much directly stated because the moment that the Iron Giant um, loses his, his – uh, it sort of loses control, basically, um, and stops trying to not be a gun, uh, the final injury that he has, which is a little dent on his head – uh, pops out and he is fully healed at that point, which really suggests that like the fully healed version of the giant, like physically healed version of the giant, the, the um, you know, the version that is as the manufacturer intended is this horrifying killing machine. But I love that actually, because it it really reinforces the idea that you have to make a choice. You have to consciously choose. It's not necessarily the default state. So Yeah, the catalyst for him, you know, hanging out with Hogarth is that he's injured and he's kind of a a return to infancy to some degree. Like he's kind of a toddler the entire time. But um, once he regains his entire faculties, then he has full agency. And now he has the opportunity to say, "Okay, am I going to be a gun or am I going to be, you know, in his case, Superman, which is just. (laughs) Just kills me every time. It's just such
1: a um, heroic but do not, moment. Do not get me started on him flying up and closing his eyes saying Superman. When I first I just, watched this movie, I was like 21 or something. Dude, I just bawling my ass out every time. I know, time. I know. Every time.
0: Who would have ever thought that Dominic Toretto, Xander <laughs> Cage, <laughs> Groot himself, Vin Diesel, would be having us all weeping like that with this role? I... I tell you I can't I can't believe it sometimes. It's what? true it's honestly it's astounding because he barely says anything. He barely says anything and it's it's a testament to the really amazing innovative uh animation work and writing but oh general this just the teamwork and the production behind this movie is is truly incredible. Everyone came and complimented one another in really really amazing ways and I think that the process that went into making this movie is just as emblematic of some of these themes that we've talked about as the narrative that the film tells in and of itself. Um, So, when Brad Bird was was sort of attached to this project, it was in sort of in the midst of this big transition and a lot of acquisitions between Warner Brothers and, and and Time Warner and things that were going on. So studios were changing, and Brad Bird had been working. You know, he'd been a consultant on The Simpsons for many times, and he'd worked with. You know, he did things here and there, and was but never had a lot of like sole creative control. And these animated animation studios tend to. Because they're they're very big and, and marketing is a big part of them. They tend to get a lot of attention, and it's very rigid and structured, and they have to have so many boxes checked, even more than a lot of dramatic. That's what, sort That's of... what amazes
1: me most is this movie was ever made the way right. it is because and, it is so critical of America at the time. It it's like normally animated kids films kind of try to stray away from that, but like it makes America look quite bad like and it's also the idyllic setting of maine it's kind of like this underlying fear that it's a gorgeous little place and you love seeing Hogarth's life you know but at the same time every newspaper in the movie has these terrible apocalyptic headlines that you can't help but think like yeah nuclear armageddon's just on its way duck and cover kids Well, he
0: even Brad Bird even said like the ideal the idyllic setting of Maine and that time the very all of the art is inspired by like Norman Rockwell and that type of artistic expression, but the simmering tension of Cold War fears is just bubbling underneath the surface everywhere you go, and there's all this anxiety about weapons and Sputnik, and there's the comics and movies that are going on in fear of the Russians and stuff like that.
1: The script, because at a certain point um when hogarth first meets the iron giant and he gets super excited i I tried to write it down the exact quote but i couldn't hear exactly what he was saying but he was saying people always wig out and start shooting when they see something new like you and that's kind of exactly what happens but um a lot of the movies about how the mainstream culture or the mainstream way of viewing things isn't always correct and sometimes you got to rely on shrimpy nerdy kids beatniks and all
0: sorts Right, which is what Brad Bird was trying to do with the production because they came to him and they, it, Time Warner had had failed with this Quest for Camelot animated feature where they were kind of trying to emulate a lot of other studios at the time. And it was, it was a tremendous flop. It did very, very poorly. So they were very, very hesitant with the Iron Giant. But in doing so – They also gave Brad Bird and his studio a lot of leeway and more autonomy than they were used to working on an animated picture. And that type of – so it was more autonomy but they also had less time and money to make this movie. Something like half the budget that they would normally be expected for this and half the time. So they're having to both cut corners and innovate – Using new technology, like in literal animation software that is being developed and sort of is new at the time, but also having to do so for you know you know sort of necessity is the mother of invention in that in that uh, sense, but in doing so. Brad Bird kind of created a very kind of skunk works-esque way of working <laughs> um, it, that sort right. of by taking these big risks ended up paying off. But problem, um, it, it,
1: see, it didn't pay off though at the box office. It paid off in time. Right. But I,
0: a lot what we have realized looking back is that a lot of the reception to the movie was actually very, very – It was very good. It just didn't get seen by a lot of people because it was a marketing failure. The Iron Giant did not have the – they had like one poster that was produced. It didn't get a lot of – You know, they didn't want it to be Quest for Camelot, so they weren't promoting it a whole lot. It did not get the press that people were expecting, but when people saw it, they really, really enjoyed it. It just didn't get in front of enough eyes, and so the Iron Giant – Came to be seen as this sort of interesting built up character that could be used for all of these amazing things, but was then lost, which I think is really interesting and ironic because, I mean, just within the past couple of years, he has been put into both Space Jam 2 and (laughs) the Warner Brothers Multiversus like battle Royale game, which are just two tremendous cash grabs. He was grabs in player one media. as well. I think. He, he, yeah, yeah. He, he's was, Red, in, he was in ready player one. Player
2: 1 also, right, yeah. right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, look all that stuff. I, so there's, there's all kinds of this, like behind the scenes aspects of a lot of the, these things that are really fascinating. I do think that there's some saving grace to this a little bit. Cause although the iron giant character has been in a couple of these other things, I have yet, and maybe I'm about to jinx this to some to some degree, but I've yet to hear a lot of people recommend like remaking the film, which I desperately hope does not happen
1: in, in this case.
0: Right.
1: Nor a sequel. But but I will say, I will say, if they remade the film, it's the perfect time because tensions, you know, America's kind of going back to the same place it was before with international tensions and fear of the other. So I think, you know, maybe it wouldn't be good, but it'd be the right time. Yeah, of course the,
2: of course it wouldn't be the, yeah, I don't think, I don't think the same lessons would, uh, would come out of it though. So that's kind of the the problem with, I, I think honestly, like a lot of it is just this, this incredible focus on craft that Brad Bird had. And like, also, by the way, let's, let's just pause for a second and note that Brad Bird was one of the first people to be brought on board by John Lasseter Coming into Pixar and like, you know, really built the what the Pixar describes as their brain trust and and that kind of thing. Um, And I, I don't think that I mean, one, obviously, he was already kind of becoming well known in animator circles. But I mean, I think the Iron Giant really solidified that. You know, recognition of Brad Bird as, as this really
1: phenomenal. I've movie. heard people say The Iron Giant is a movie for animation students. Like, a lot of people look up to it as quite yeah, I genius mean, and artistically. I wouldn't know anything, but... I, I believe it. It's
0: interesting because... Cal Arts students were brought on to help in the crunch time of producing it. At one point, interestingly enough, so it wasn't just that they look up to it, but that it was sort of a proof that they can be as just as involved as the people who are professionals. Yeah, and
1: and
2: for those who don't know that you know John Lasseter was was at Cal Arts before being tapped by uh, Steve Jobs actually to you know to do head up Pixar. <music> I also want to say something else about this that I just always really loved, which is that you you're you're right, Paul, that, that a lot of this movie is about sort of finding or, or breaking through stereotypes and finding, you know, the the value that people contribute, even though, you know, the 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 shrimpy kid or the beatnik or whatever. But I also want to say that almost very few of the characters are actually stereotypes. Even the villains. Yes. So so, okay. Yes. Um, well, I, I, I don't know, I guess for the time, Christopher McDonald's Kent Mansley, by the way, Kent Mansley is just my favorite name for <laughs> yeah, a, for a government yeah. agent. It's just so perfect. <laughs> but, um, you know, Kent Mansley is first of all breaking the stereotype of the hyper competent, you know, government agent that you, you would have kind of seen in the eighties and nineties and whatever. But, um, but on the other hand, I, I always appreciated the fact that John Mahoney's general Rogard uh was not an insane like the the idea of especially yes. kind of in the early 2000s you started to get this idea of like the the warmonger, you know, like like violent lunatic general, right? Think about the um you know the the general in uh Avatar in James Cameron's Avatar, right? Like just 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 kind of
1: lunatic. But often Today in movies, a lot of the times the military is right next to the shady secret agents in Washington and all sorts, and they're kind of just treated as almost like lackeys who go along with it. But in this movie, yeah. the military are like, no, this is suicide. It this is, is a terrible idea. Yeah, and I love that about that movie because it doesn't, it shows that
2: Mansley is not. It, the, the point is not necessarily in this case that every member of the government or every government agent is some kind of lunatic like Mansley. It's that Mansley as an individual has gone down this path and other individuals who are in similar positions of power to Mansley don't agree with him. And so we can actually have that conversation too. It's not, it's not so black and white that it's like, here are all the bad guys on this side and here are all the good guys. It's like, well, we've got one lunatic here who then, you know, <laughs> the the end where Mansley's like, you know, launch the missile, and he's like, "Are are you kidding?" And then, of course, General, um, you know, uh, uh, General Rogard actually like forces Mansley to stay there, <laughs> which is like,
1: oh yeah, yeah, I remember that too. Okay, so if you'll permit me to start doing some libertarian reaching, possibly too far-reaching, um, <laughs> but I think a lot of the movie. Uh, Mansley isn't like an evil guy, and uh, I think it's the movie kind of does a little bit of this, but I don't think Mansley's like evil. I think he's just been influenced by the world he lives in because there's a certain part where he's talking to Hogarth and he's trying to convince him. He's like, Hogarth, just tell me where this thing is. And he's talking and he's saying, Everyone wants what we have, and we have to destroy them before they destroy us. And it kind of just goes in exactly what Hogarth said earlier that people will wig out, they'll go crazy, and they'll start shooting us, and they see something new. They're not ready to see the Iron Giant, um, but. Like you know, Mansley isn't an evil fellow. In a lot of ways, he's just trying to look out. It could be anything. Um, it could be absolutely anything that the Iron Giant is, and he doesn't know, he's absolutely terrified. And so he doesn't do anything he does out of a sense of evil. It's most of the time out of kind of a sense of duty and paranoia, but also caring. Um, but it shows how your perception of people can just be influenced by your fear of them. That most people so when Hogarth first encounters the Iron Giant, he's a child, so. He just thinks it's great. It's the best thing ever.
2: Well, and it's a child who also loves monster Yeah, yeah. So he's loving 50 it. 50s sci-fi and like the idea of like the 50 foot robot, you know, it's just like the greatest, it's the greatest thing a kid could have.
1: Well, when Dean first meets the robot, he runs away, of course. And then eventually he comes to a kind of detente and he says, okay, the giant can stay in my my house for a night or so. And eventually he's calling up Hogarth saying, you got to get this guy out of here. But then they start to work together making art. And you can always see that, like, yeah, of course. If you only view other people as a danger and you can't get anything from them, you're never gonna want anyone new or anything different, and you're always gonna view outsiders as only a bad thing. Yeah. So Dean is
2: Dean is has always been probably my favorite character um, in so the film, cool. maybe apart from the Iron Giant himself. But it, in part because g- going back to kind of what I'm saying, like, Dean Dean is a beatnik. But Dean also like he's not high all the time. He's not, um, you know, like Dean doesn't even quite fit the stereotype of beatnik. He's actually a pretty practical guy in a lot of ways. He um, he is not living off of uh, you know welfare or charity or anything like that. He's making a living. He he is actually a really interesting character because he does he has a business that he runs that he seems to take seriously. Um, but also that business fuels his passion, his art and those kinds of things. And, but also like as a character, I think Dean represents reason and openness, which, you know, like you don't really get as clearly with any of the other characters, right? Like Hogarth just represents kind of wonder and, and, you know, excitement for, for this new thing. But Dean actually pauses and says, okay, this, this giant can be dangerous, he's not oblivious to the fact that like he's with a child who you know potentially needs to be protected from this thing but he's also curious enough and intelligent enough and reasonable enough to say okay but i don't need to assume that i don't need to assume that the giant is is this monster so let's let's see what happens
1: i also love that dean says um it's not my style to report someone to the authorities at some <laughs> yeah. point but yeah. uh, i think as well like He's a reasonable person, but he doesn't need every answer out there in front of him. Like, it's kind of funny um, right. that when he talks about his junkyard, he's like, am I a junk man or am I an artist? And it doesn't really seem to bother him, whatever he is, because he's happy. It doesn't really bother him, the perception of others. And it's like, it's kind of just a throwaway line that goes over you. But if you look into it a little bit, you're like, damn, this this script is just covered in ideas. Well, I I love that because honestly, like
2: a lot of times you see kind of uh, beatniks or – and maybe this is, uh, you know, my kind of atheism and and whatever kind of playing into this a little bit. But like you see a lot of these kinds of characters that end up being beatniks or hippies or whatever and and yeah, they end up being the cool character in the film or they end up being the one that has like the little piece of magically sage advice or whatever in, in this moment. But they're also like nuts most of the time. They're
0: people yeah, who kind of dumb like, sometimes. Are, absent-minded, yeah, they, right?
2: Yeah, and also they just believe everything. You know, like oh, your chakras and what. And it's just like okay, like I don't want that character. I want the character like Dean, who's who is actually just a pretty normal dude, but does his own thing. You know, um, he's in rural Maine, yet he likes jazz. He likes espresso. He's <laughs> he's sort of. you you get the sense that maybe he's traveled a little bit or at least he's read about other parts of the world and he's not, you know, afraid of, of the other so much, you know, and that's such a great thing.
1: I was reading a statistic the other day and it said that uh, most people who ever live before the 20th century only ever travel, like 95% of people only travel 30 kilometers away from their home. Now I'm not sure of the exact validity of that quote, but the general idea is there that most people throughout history are not used to seeing something wildly different, even wildly different people, let alone giant robots. Well, and I mean, all all
2: I mean, just look at how the movie or how all the other uh, townsfolk treat the sailor at the beginning who sees, you know, the Iron Giant. That's emerge the first the thing I was line. thinking of. Right. You know, like they all just he is a complete nutcase. Right. Like and it, Dean being of this the
1: perfect man, as always says uh he says like you know if someone has to defend the cooks if no one does who will
2: yeah i mean well it's great that's a great moment too because dean doesn't believe him right like dean doesn't believe that guy either but he's just he's like look man like you don't need to beat him up over this like he saw something who knows what it was but dean doesn't like go for the irrational position there either he's not like well that guy just had some wild claim and I'm definitely going to fall right into it. You know, he's, he's waiting for evidence and it's just, I don't know. Anyway, Dean, it's, but in any case, Dean ends up being Hogarth's role model, which is, and, and father figure. And then, you know, by the end of the movie, presumably sort of his uh, stepfather, uh, you know, actually. And that's, again, I just, I feel like so many kids' movies uh, have such terrible lessons so many so much of the time and they offer role models that are actually name and shame bad well okay like the the lorax for example i mean you know just just off the top of my head i mean it's uh it's vehemently anti-capitalist it is um uh like basically tries to scold people into um you know treating the environment better but it also like has wildly inconsistent views of what it means to to treat the environment well. Uh, it's ba- based on completely irrational premises in so many ways. I mean, you could go down the list of, of kids' movies, and you'll
1: find, like, tons and tons of just bad... My, my least favorite is The Lion King. Lion King... Not movie wise, obviously, it's a great movie. But message wise, Lion King is just like, isn't divine monarchy fabulous? Yeah, I mean, there's
2: there's another great example. Well, and that yeah, okay, so we can go down the list of sort of Disney movies, right, and that give people irrational expectations about relationships, that give people bizarre understandings of government. Where I, I think Disney's probably done more than almost anything else to to institute this idea of the right person in charge. We'll fix all of our problems, right? We just get rid of the evil stepmother and, and uh, you know, return the good king to power or the good queen or whatever. Like, everything will be okay. Like, those are horrible, horrible messages for kids. And they're horrible ways to teach people about uh, the state, for example. But um, they're everywhere, you know. And the Iron Giant offers skepticism of the state without vilifying, sort of blanket, you know, blanket vilifying all government uh, agents, right? Um, it glorifies reason. It glorifies uh, free will and choice. It glorifies moral agency. And it, its hero is ultra powerful and exceptionally dangerous and chooses to use that power for good and for defense. Amazing absolutely amazing and it'll make you cry
0: and you know what here paul your moment has arrived here's what we'll do my time to shine paul because you specifically requested it we're going to do our favorite old segment locked in What else have you been enjoying in your free time other than reliving the joyous time of watching The Iron Giant, Paul?
1: I'm glad you asked, Landry, because every pop and lock I've been on, I never give a proper answer because I don't watch much TV, but I've watched a TV show, so ha 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 I finally done it so my tv show is what we do in the shadows and <gasps> I've watched all four seasons now and I love it great choice I have watched everything but that the very last choice.
0: episode of the last season I've I've been avoiding it I need to buckle down
1: and watch it because I, I do love it I spent my whole time just thinking about the practicalities of vampires and I got so into it that I ended up reading a few papers about the mathematics behind it And, uh, depending on, like, one paper had three different models it used, and I was saying, like, the classic Dracula vampires, um, the whole world would be vampires in less than half the year, but the only coexisting with vampires we can have is the Twilight scenario, so... It's Just a great. It out there.
0: I mean, I don't get. I'm not mad about it. I love the Twilight films. One of my favorite favorite uh, films. I have series. not. Uh,
2: I stopped watching. Uh, I watched out of a out, out of legitimately. I watched the first two Twilight movies or first one and a half Twilight movies out of professional curiosity. Literally. <laughs> um. Uh-huh. I, they were. They were. They were. Um. They were doing really, really well in theaters <laughs> at the time, <laughs> right. and right. I was I like. I, I well no I watched them I watched them way later on streaming or whatever but like I I was like I I was living with filmmakers as as I have most of my life until I got married and um I we were like God people love these things we don't know why so let's and what we do
1: in the shadows they recreate the baseball scene but they with do kickball. I love it oh it's my so gosh
2: good.
0: but it's, so the baseball I, scene, I don't know the, I stopped watching it one of the best scenes in. Modern cinema, I must say. The first movie in the Twilight, we've had a Twilight episode of this show. What am I doing? I've done this before. Twilight One, bad but fun to watch. Two, New Moon, not great. Just it's just yeah, not good. Th-
2: this is why I stopped. I, I watched, I watched one and a half and I was <laughs> like, this is
0: terrible. And I gave up. Three, they introduce some crazy stuff, and it's not good, but you start to get into it, and it's weird. Four is just bonkers, and I enjoy it because it's so off the wall. That's a commitment, though. Breaking I Dawn Part 2, it got me Laundry. at the end. It got me at the end. I, I was, I was, there was a moment I where I was like, <gasps> and I gasped. You just went through a full character arc. You did. What we do in the shadows. I'm gonna. I'm gonna bring this
2: back to this for a second. Is I am so impressed with the TV series because the movie is phenomenal. If you if you haven't seen, if anybody hasn't seen uh, Taika Waititi's like mockumentary version of and Jamey Clements um, mockumentary version of what we do in the shadows, like the, the film, the feature film, it is so phenomenal. And when they announced the TV series, first of all, my gut was like reaction was negative because I was like, you cannot translate that. And then two, I didn't want to see those characters from the film recast as weaker, less funny versions for the TV series. And they avoided it entirely by making the show about the broader world of, of like the vampires and adding different characters outright. And then as an added bonus, we've gotten cameos of Jemaine Clement and, and, you know, Taika in the series. So like it actually ended up being perfect. And it's just, that's a phenomenal, it's fun, phenomenal poll. I'm glad you glad you're checking that out, Paul. It's great. Uh, I watched Dahmer, uh, which is uh, like as anti iron giant as you can get. I, I feel like <laughs> it, it, it is, um, it is very, very well made, utterly horrifying. And I do not necessarily recommend wallowing in that, that level of just, uh, human uh, evil. Is it, it a TV it,
1: show it, or a movie?
2: It's a series. 10 episodes on Netflix. Evan Peters is phenomenal. Richard Jenkins is phenomenal. Molly Ringwald, uh, oddly enough, shows up as uh, Dahmer's stepmom. I haven't seen Molly Ringwald in years. She does a great job. It is utterly horrifying, however, because you basically you spend the first four or five episodes. Oh, I love how they did it though, which is that they really focused on his victims. So you, what you do is like every episode for the first like five, you get to know one of the people that he killed in a pretty, you know, more extensive way, but that only makes it worse because then you see what's, you know, you know what's going to happen and then you see what happens and they do not pull a lot of punches in terms of like the gruesome aspects of things. It's just utterly, but it's also like as a as a libertarian, if you want something that will make you uh, reinforce your hatred of of the cops, oh boy, Dahmer is uh, way up there. The cops uh, got like the Dahmer's neighbor called the cops on him dozens of times, and and actively told the cops that he was probably killing people or probably doing something horrible in that apartment. They did nothing for. But a year, like nothing. It's insane. Um, anyway, that was uh, that was gruesome. And uh, then last night, I I wanted to shift gears radically and introduced a friend of mine to Edward Scissorhands for the first time.
0: So. <laughs> I haven't watched a lot of new stuff recently, but I did, however, just start reading a book called Gideon the Ninth, which I'm really really enjoying. It is a sort of science fantasy novel um set in this world where there's all these houses of like necromancers that like control various mystical powers of of you know life and death and they're summoned uh, some of them are summoned to this planet by the emperor who's this like like undying king to like get abduct or er, to get Brought into this like order and become priests of the world or whatever. But there's like sword fights and very witty banter and like kind of modern language in it, which normally in like a TV show, I find very annoying unless it's done very well. But in this context, I don't mind it at all. And there's enough mystery and vagueness and very well written Descriptions outside of the dialogue that make up for it and make it really, really interesting. And it's part of the Locked Tomb series by Tamson Muir. Um, and it's just a really, really fun. I, I don't know what's gonna happen, but there's sword fighting and necromancers <laughs> and tombs and space flights. It's it's kind of like Dune meets Gormenghast. Um <laughs> <laughs> meets. Uh, this is how you lose the Time War. It's it's really really interesting and fun stuff. Really easy to read, but uh, uh, I, I I don't even know where it's going to go. I'm only a third of the way through the first book, but I already highly recommend it. Gideon the Ninth. Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to keep in touch with us and get more Pop and Lock content is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at popandlockpod. That's pop, the letter N, lock with an E, like the philosopher, pod. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time.